Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. When you hear the term masochist, what's the first thing that you picture in your mind? Odds are it's someone engaged in a kinky sex act. Perhaps they are getting spanked, whipped, or humiliated, or all of the above. They're intentionally receiving pain and then experiencing pleasure. This connection between pain and pleasure is hardly restricted to the bedroom or to the dungeon. It's actually a pretty pervasive part of everyday life. And the pleasure that comes from pain isn't always sexual. I mean, just consider a long-distance marathon runner, or someone who covers their entire body in tattoos or piercings, or the person who orders everything extra spicy, or anyone who bites or chews their nails or cuticles to the point where they bleed. In all of these cases, people are intentionally inflicting pain on themselves, but they're also getting some pleasure out of it, which can include everything from stress relief to distraction to social capital and admiration. So why is that? We're going to do a deep dive into the psychology of masochism today. We're going to explore why so many of us choose to suffer, what we get out of this, why pain is sometimes sexually arousing, as well as when pain-seeking behavior is healthy and when it can become a problem. I am joined today by Lee Cowart, a researcher and journalist whose work has appeared in the Washington Post, New York Magazine, Popular Science, and more. Lee's latest book, Hurt So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose, has been featured in the New York Times, NPR, and the Wall Street Journal. This is going to be a fascinating conversation that you won't want to miss. So stick around, and we're going to jump in right after the break. Get fit and stay firm with FirmTech. Their performance ring is designed to boost your sexual stamina and give you harder, longer-lasting erections, while also enhancing pleasure for both the wearer and their partner. Their tech ring has the added benefit of tracking your erectile health when synced with FirmTech's free mobile app, which monitors changes in erection duration, hardness, and more. Take control of your sexual health while increasing sexual performance and satisfaction at the same time. To learn more, check the show notes or visit myfirmtech.com and be sure to use my exclusive discount code, Justin20, to save 20% off your purchase. Again, that's myfirmtech.com. Applications are now open for a new continuing medical education course from the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The course is titled Gender, Sexuality, and Medicine, an Introduction to LGBTQ Competent Care, and it will be held this fall. Both online and in-person attendance options are available. This course is intended for health professionals, and it offers continuing education credits. Please visit kinseyinstitute.org for more information and to register. Hi, Lee, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. To kick off our conversation, I'd like to ask you for the story behind Hurts So Good. What inspired you to write a book that's all about why humans seek out pain on purpose? (laughs) I love that question. And to be honest, it started as a personal project. I was a professional ballet dancer and, and I started when I was very young. And it was very difficult. I had a, a, a very abusive time in the art form. And when I left, I really collapsed emotionally. I didn't have any structure in my life. I didn't have this 
centerpiece that I built my life around and I kind of imploded. I mean, I did implode. I got very into self-harm. I nearly died from an eating disorder that I had nurtured throughout ballet. And I went through this very dark time and I survived it. And coming through the other side of that, rebuilding my life after ballet, doing so much therapy, so many different modalities, and really kind of putting myself together as a person, I did all this work and I found that I still liked pain. I still like to play with pain. It was like a hobby for me. And I guess I kind of thought that once I left ballet behind, maybe I, there'd be something fundamentally different about me, but I realized that there wasn't. So I became very curious, like, why do I like pain? Why do I like to dabble in it? What's going on for me? You know, I'm a science journalist by trade. So I just kind of started going through the research and writing a lot about it. And then I just realized that it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Most people have a masochistic tendency of some flavor or another, whether it's polar plunges or hot peppers or kinky sex or, you know, running marathons. And it just became a much bigger question that wasn't just about me anymore. It was about a very common facet of humanity that's been going on for about as long as we have records. And I wanted to investigate that. Thank you for sharing all of that. And for purposes of our conversation, we're going to be talking about pain that people seek out intentionally. So they consent to it. Having pain inflicted on you that you don't want is a totally different thing. When it comes to consensual pain, as you were mentioning, I think this is something you can argue that pretty much everyone will do at least once, if not many times over the course of their lives. And in putting together this interview, I was thinking about what are the most relatable examples of this? And I think seeking healthcare or even psychotherapy is a perfect example because we know that the treatment for many physical and mental health conditions can be really painful and that we're often going to feel a lot worse before we feel better. And the same goes for something like childbirth. You know, childbirth is really painful most of the yes, time. Yes, it is. <laughs> but people do it anyway because there's so much joy and pleasure in having children. And, you know, I'm even thinking about things like taking a vacation. Like, at least for me, the experience of traveling somewhere is such a pain in the ass, right? Mm -hmm. You have to get up early for your flight, which I hate doing, very physically uncomfortable. Then you have to sit in these terrible cramped seats. You have to wait in line. You have to deal with horrible customer service. But then ultimately, you get the pleasure of your vacation vacation. So I think there are so many different ways you can look at this where we know we're going to experience pain, but we're going to get pleasure too. So in this way, I guess, would you say we're all masochists to some degree? Yeah, I would say that we're all on the spectrum somewhere. And our predilection for masochistic behaviors is something that's in flux throughout our lives. You know, it's not a static thing. It can change day to day, moment to moment. It can be really context dependent. I mean, it is very context dependent, like that's the name of the game, right? It's the act of opting into it, the act of choosing the pain that makes masochism possible. If you, you can use the tenets of masochism to endure pain you don't ask for, and lots of people do that. However, that is not masochism. Masochism requires you to say yes and requires that you're also able to say no when you've had enough, like you're in the driver's seat. And it's that context that can really open up the playground of pleasure and pain and how the two interface and what our bodies do in situations like that. I love that explanation. 
Now, as you discussed in your book, pain is kind of this messy thing to study. There are so many different factors that are involved in the perception of pain. And pain is ultimately subjective. You know, the same painful stimulus can be perceived in drastically different ways by different people. But pain is really important. It exists for a reason. And I know a lot of people who think that being unable to experience physical pain, for example, would be this great thing. But if you look at research on people who are born with the inability to experience physical pain, which is a rare medical condition, it's actually extremely dangerous. And these folks often die before they reach adulthood because they experience an illness or injury and they don't notice it or they don't seek treatment for it as a result. So Lee, can you speak to this adaptive role that pain plays in our lives and why we experience it in the first place? Yes. Pain is so important because it functions as like as a, a warning system, a way for the body to communicate to the brain that something that might be dangerous is happening. Your nociceptors are just out there in your body, uh, ready and willing to wave a little red flag to your brain to be like, hey, 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 pay attention to me. What's, what is this? What is going on right here? Is this Okay. And it's your brain's job to take in all of this information and be like, mm, like basically upvote or downvote the stimulus that's coming in to be like, yes, this is important or no, this isn't really important. Pay attention to this other thing. And so you have this adaptive warning system that is in place to kind of help keep the, the meat of you, your body safe as you go out into the world. And, you know, your brain is basically trapped in a box and it, it has sensory input from your eyes and from your nose and from your ears and from your nociceptors and all of this sensory input that allows it to kind of basically hallucinate reality up in the goo of you that, and then start a chain of events that will keep the physical meat of you as safe as possible as you're out there in the world. And obviously not having this is devastating. If you don't know when your leg is broken, if you don't know when your hand is burnt, if you can't tell when your body's overheating, if you cannot tell if you need to get off that foot and rest it before the injury gets worse, then you have this cascading effect of damage in the body that could be very, very hard to overcome. So while it, it seems that, you know, oh, if we could just get rid of pain, everything would be better. It's actually a really useful system. But we also have a system in place to give us pain relief when we experience it. And that is very important in the context of masochism. Yes, absolutely. So pain is important. It's there for a reason. Let's talk about this connection between pain and pleasure. Obviously, not all pain is pleasurable. You know, sometimes pain is just an awful experience, especially Correct. if you're talking about <laughs> something like chronic pain, which I mm, experienced yes. recently. I am on a kickball team and injured my back while playing Oof. one day and it's hurt for months since. And it was the first time in my life where I had chronic pain that just would not go away. And no matter what I did, it was always there. And, you know, it was actually interesting that in some cases, seeking out additional pain was the solution for dealing with that. So for example, getting a massage, uh, you know that getting a massage, if you ask for deep pressure, it's going to hurt, right? Oh yeah. But 
that's the kind of pain that hurts so good, right? And it provides some relief and it provides counter stimulation when you've got this injury or something else going on, right? But anyway, so, you know, sometimes pain is just bad. Sometimes it hurts so good. So what is it psychologically that can make that experience of pain pleasurable? Oh, I love that question. There are so many factors that come into play when we are kind of contextualizing a painful experience. An expectation of value, obviously, an expectation of benefit is huge. When you get a deep tissue massage or you go to acupuncture or you decide to have like really hot chilies on your curry, you're doing this because you expect it to benefit you in some way. You expect to enjoy some part of the outcome. And whether or not you enjoy the whole ride or just the end of the ride depends on the person. But the outcome is going to be, I'm going to have this aversive experience that I'm choosing to have. And because I have that context of choice and desire for it, it is going to change my experience of the pain and what I get out of it. There's a great story in the book about the contextual nature of pain and the subjective nature of pain that involves a snake bite. And you have this very famous researcher, Dr. Lorimer Mosley, who was hiking in the bush. And he felt a sensation on the outside of his leg that he wasn't expecting. And his brain kind of went down the checklist of like, okay, I'm getting sensation from the outside of the leg. Where am I? Am I okay? Is this expected? I'm hiking barelegged. It's probably a twig. No big deal. Just keep walking. So he keeps walking. And shortly thereafter, passes out, just completely hits the ground. Turns out he was bitten by an Eastern brown snake, one of the most poisonous snakes in the world. He experienced what is considered to be one of the most painful snake bites. But his brain didn't have the context for snake bite loaded into the software. It just had hiking. So he didn't get the experience, the painful experience of the bite. Uh, he survives this and goes hiking again. And he's out there and he feels a sensation on the outside of his leg. And this time his brain, remembering the great lesson of last time, went, oh my God, and just dropped him, gave him 10 out of 10 pain in that moment, except that time it really was a stick. And I think once you understand that the nature of our experience of pain really is so subjective. There's no one-to-one ratio stimulus to pain. Once you see the subjectivity of it, you start to realize, oh, maybe masochism makes a little more sense. Maybe if I say that I want a spanking because it's going to give me endorphins and make me feel close to my partner and explore these delicious power dynamics, the expectation of benefit that the spanking will overall be fun even if part of it is painful and actually kind of hard to get through, you can see maybe the appeal of that and the possibility of that just based on the way that our brains interface with our bodies and try to keep us safe. And this goes back to what I was saying about how studying pain is this messy thing, right? And because there are so many different factors at play here. And you're so right that your expectancy effects can have a huge impact on just whether or not you're going to experience pain and then also whether that pleasure is going to come along with it. But there's also just all other kinds of things where, for example, when you experience pain, it kind of has this way of centering you where you kind of block out everything else. And so you're really just focusing on the intensity of that particular physical stimulus. 
And in that way, you can kind of let go of a lot of distracting thoughts and other things. And I think that kind of helps to explain part of how pain can lead to pleasure is because it's a very potent distraction. There's also this way that pain can sort of serve to increase the intensity of other pleasurable things in and of itself. So I'm thinking, and I use this example in my book, Tell Me What You Want, where if somebody goes out into the cold, the bitter cold, that hurts, right? Mm -hmm. When you have that really cold air on your skin, but then you come inside into a warm environment and you take a sip of that hot cocoa, it tastes so much better because you sort of have that contrast effect of the pain with the pleasure. And so I think that's another psychological avenue here is that it's so much about contrast. Yes, you had this really intense pain, then you sort of centered yourself, blocked everything else out, and then you experience something pleasurable and it just feels even better, right? That the pain has heightened that in some way. <laughs> so we know that people can experience all kinds of pleasurable things from pain, and sometimes this is sexual. So can we talk a little bit more about why is pain sexually arousing? And specifically, what is it about pain that can enhance sex? Oh my gosh, so many reasons. I love this topic. So one of the things about pain is that it brings us unequivocally into the present moment. It is very hard to think about your tax return when you are getting the business end of a whip, right? Like it's, it just, it focuses your brain on a single thing. And that's very hard to do. You know, I have one of those like hamster wheel brains that just like never shuts off, it seems like. So I am drawn to hobbies and, and things that kind of shush my brain out. So it's just like color and sensation and endurance and being present. It can also be very vulnerable and erotic to give power to somebody else, especially and you know, when you know that it's actually your power, the, the bottom controls the scene, you can stop at any time. So to give power over your body to someone else, to consent to experiencing pain in pursuit of pleasure, to explore themes of endurance and submissiveness and subjugation and elation and endorphins and just everything that your body can do, you know, it makes sense that people would take, would fold that into their explorations of pleasure with themselves and with other people. You know, when Kenzie did the this, this survey and asked people if they like to be bitten during sex, about half of them said yes. That's really high. I mean, that's higher than I expected just based on the taboo around masochism. Like we're not supposed to talk about this. It's like, ooh, not a spanking, but it's so common. And I think that the more we are able to kind of unmuddy the waters of reflection and kind of get away from the pearl clutching and be like curious about the ways that we use sensation to connect with ourselves and to connect with other people and to be present during those moments of connection, I think that's a really good line of inquiry. It is. And, you know, it's got me thinking about some of the past episodes of the podcast that I've recorded where I've talked to people who study kink and BDSM. And it relates what you're saying very much to this idea of how an activity where there is that experience of pain can totally change your headspace and allow you to really be in the moment. And it's sort of an alternative to mindfulness training and other sort of techniques where you're kind of learning to center yourself. It's just sort of a handy way of, I need to block out everything else that's going on, focus. And so pain can be this adaptive way to do it. 
And I suspect that's part of the reason why in some of my own research, I've seen a link between previous experiences with trauma and having greater interest in BDSM. And I think that that's actually adaptive and therapeutic because it's a way of sort of temporarily letting go of that trauma so that you can be in the moment and enjoy sex. Yeah. For some people experiencing really intense pain and frequent pain is the key to pleasure. So here we're talking about the extreme marathon runners, the ballerinas, the hardcore masochists who might endure extreme rituals like walking on hot coals or being suspended from the ceiling by hooks embedded in the skin. Why do some people seek out this really intense pain or have this much higher need for stimulation than others? That's a great question. And I think there are, there are many avenues towards increasing one's desire for sensation and especially for pain. You know, you can rate someone for sensation seeking and some people are more high sensation seeking than others. Uh, I was recently talking to a researcher who thought I was funny because I rate really high on sensation seeking, but I'm also pretty fearful in a way that they don't usually see coupled together or didn't in the study they've been working on. Why does someone want more stimulation? It could be how their brain works. It could be how they were raised. It's probably both. <laughs> and I think that, you know, some people go through periods where they are more high sensation seeking. They want more stimulation. They may need more sensation to counteract what's happening in their brain, or they may want more stimulation because they've become habituated to a certain level or because they want to explore a deeper side of their masochism. I certainly fluctuate in my desire for pain. Sometimes I want different types of play. Uh, and then sometimes I'll want like really heavy impact play, but I wouldn't say that that's my default. So if I got that kind of impact play when I wasn't wanting it, I would hate it. I would, I would totally hate it, like stubbing my toe, but getting heavy impact play when I want it is transcendent to me. It really like, it can just drop me into the depths of subspace in a way that I find to be really delicious and evocative and intense, but also centering. You understand why pain has been used in so much religious ritual, because it, it really is a way to use, you know, the kind of wet electrics, the chemistry of your body to create those endogenous, that endogenous morphine, your endorphins, to activate the endocannabinoid system, to get all these drugs from inside the house that make you feel better. So whether or not someone wants a lot of sensation or not, it could be reflective of something physical in their bodies. It could be reflective of the context that they're in. Heavy play with one person is great, but I don't play heavy with most people. So with someone else, a light spanking might be like, no, that's actually not, that's too much sensation for me because it's a different person. So understanding that, you know, pain is so subjective and how we experience it is so subjective. It's hard to generalize about why some people want more pain than others because we don't know how they themselves are experiencing it. Absolutely. So as you're describing it, it's very much a biopsychosocial phenomenon, right? So on the biological side, it could be just sort of how your brain is laid out. And we know that people who are higher in sensation seeking, there's some research showing that they have differences in their dopamine receptors. And so they're a little less sensitive to it. And so they might need a more intense stimulus to get the same impact that 
the average or typical person might experience. So you got the biological side, then you've got the psychological side, your personality and you know sort of learned experiences coming into play. And then you've got the environmental contextual side, you know, who is your partner? What's the situation? So it's going to be the combination of all of these things that really matters in terms of what type of pain do I want in this particular moment? And what do I need and what's going to be pleasurable? And as you mentioned, you know, that can shift from day to day, hour to hour, really depending on that situation and how these factors all come together. Now, as we've been discussing, the pursuit of pleasure through pain is a pretty ubiquitous part of our everyday lives and a pretty big part of our sex lives. And in the study that I conducted for Tell Me What You Want, one of the things I asked participants was whether they had ever fantasized about receiving physical pain during sex. And 79% of women and 49% of men said that they had. And further, about one in three women and one in 10 men said this is something that they fantasize about often. And if you look at sexual and gender minorities, they actually fantasize about this even more than their cisgender heterosexual counterparts. So masochism, and in this case, sexual masochism, is not this rare or unusual thing, yet it's highly stigmatized and pathologized, as you were alluding to. So if it's this normative part of the human experience, where does all the shame and stigma come from? I really think that part of it has to do with the origin of the word. The, the word masochism comes from a work called Psychopathia Sexualis by Richard von Kraft Ebbing. And that book is kind of like the first, one of the first European texts, comprehensive texts of sexual pathology. And Kraft Ebbing, he had worked at a university shortly after uh, Leopold von Sacher Masoch. Now, Masoch, we know today as the author of Venus and Furs. He was very popular in his day. People still read Venus and Furs. It's like one of the canonical kink texts. And he had a lucrative career as a writer of these like very erotic works of domination and subjugation by beautiful women in furs. However, Richard von Kraft Ebbing found out that it wasn't fiction for our Leopold because Leopold had presented it as just all fiction, but it turns out that that's actually really what he was into. Like that was his kink. He was writing about his life, a fictionalized version of his life. And so without telling Leopold, Richard von Kraft Ebbing named the word masochism after Sacher Masoch and ruined his life. People were like, oh, no, it's real. And they they shunned him. And everyone was like, ew, you can't really do that for real. And it's not that Masak was some angel. Like, he absolutely had his issues. But the pearl clutching of the time and the rejection of him writing about his actual sexuality really created this, like, kind of boogeyman context around the word masochism. Even though today we use the word masochism colloquially to mean anyone who derives pleasure from pain, it's not inherently sexual because the word has sexual roots and because you know America is still a culture where talking about sex is still very taboo and you're punished for it if you do it in the wrong context. There is this resistance to talking about masochism, I think, because of the, the like shameful sexual connotations of the birth of that word. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And since you brought up Venus and for a little sidebar about that. Uh, so a few years ago, I was a 
instructor at Harvard. I taught human sexuality courses there and I was living in Boston. And there was this production, live stage production of Venus and Fur that was happening. And some people with the show reached out to me and said, hey, will you do a Q&A with our audience after one of the shows to talk about the psychology of kink and BDSM? And I was like, sure. And what I didn't realize was, you know, this was a matinee show and it was full of senior citizens. And so we watched this whole play about, you know, kinky stuff. And then I had to get up in front of this audience and talk about nipple clamps and BDSM and all this <laughs> other stuff. And it was it was a fun experience. Not my usual audience, but I know I expanded some minds that day. <laughs> so something I've been wondering about as we're talking about all of this is whether our tendency toward masochism might help to explain the current outrage culture we found ourselves in on social media. And I say this because every fucking day, someone on the internet who we don't know says something that hurts us. And it might be something that feels invalidating. It might be something that goes against our core beliefs and values. Maybe it's just utterly offensive. But we know damn well that every time we get on social media, especially a platform like Twitter, you're going to experience some type of pain, most likely. But there's also this certain pleasure that comes from responding, right? When you put your opinion out there, when you put the other person in their place, when you watch somebody get ratioed, when you receive likes and supportive comments from people who agree with you, there's some pleasure, some enjoyment people get from that. So what do you think about this idea? Can logging onto social media every day be another potential manifestation of our masochistic tendencies? I think so. And I think that the creator of the term benign masochism, Dr. Paul Rosin, he includes emotional masochism under his umbrella. So like watching a movie that you know is going to make you cry, going on to, to the internet to weigh in on a thread that you know is going to upset you. Like, I think that there is something masochistic about that because if like, you have to ask yourself, would I still log on to read those and engage if I couldn't engage? Like if I couldn't get my little dopamine fix of telling that guy, fuck you, would it still be fun for me to participate in the pain of reading those things? And since masochism requires both consenting to the pain and getting something out of it, it seems like that kind of getting online to hurt your own feelings, but then also feel vindicated and feel better would fall under the umbrella of masochism for sure. I think so. And also, as I'm thinking more about this, I'm thinking too about how when people confront somebody else online who says one of these offensive things, they often feel as though they've done something or have accomplished something by speaking out. And so that can be another way that there's sort of some pleasure that might come along with it. <laughs> but yes, I, I think that this is just an important point to make that masochism is not this inherently sexual thing. It can take a lot of different forms in our everyday lives. And you know, even somebody who goes and visits, say, a professional dominatrix, it's not always about sex. You know, I've had dominatrixes on the show before who have talked about what happens, and sometimes there is no sexual component whatsoever. And you know, the ones that I've talked to don't actually have sex with their clients, you know, and there's not necessarily even any nudity involved in a lot of their interactions. So I think there's just a lot of misconceptions that, you know, it's always sexual and it just works in different ways for, for different people. Yeah. We're more used to the idea of pleasure in contexts that are not sexual, an ice cream cone, a swimming pool, a sunny day. Those are not inherently erotic, but we also understand that pleasure can be very, very sexual or lightly sexual, you know, the full spectrum. And I think masochism is the same way. You can use it for sex, but you can also use it for millions of other things, release, transcendence, fun, 
it's a playground. Your body is a wet and messy playground. And this is one of the many ways that we can explore joy inside of it. This wet and messy playground. You have a beautiful way of describing things. Now, the flip side of pursuing pain for pleasure is, of course, inflicting pain for pleasure, also known as sadism. And I think there's this interesting connection between sadism and masochism that often goes unacknowledged. And I say this because I had a conversation with Midori a few years ago, who is a professional dominatrix, and she changed the way that I view sadism. And the idea she turned me on to is that when people inflict pain on others, witnessing that other person's pain can cause you to experience pain. So in that sense, part of the appeal of sadism might actually be your own pain. So in other words, there might be some degree of masochism that is inherent in being a sadist. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this idea. Oh, yeah. I love that framing. It's interesting that you bring this up. I just wrote a piece about why we like watching thrill seekers, like why we watch daredevils. And part of that had to do with the way, like what happens in our brains when we watch somebody else. Like we're hyper social, we learn by watching. And so when you see someone like say jump up and down, the part of your brain that would plan that activity would light up on an fMRI and they can see that you are kind of micro dosing their experience for lack of a better term. And so watching someone suffer would activate like your own systems of empathy just like watching someone get a paper cut would make you like recoil like uh if you're like me not everyone is as sensitive as i am to stuff like that but if i watched you give yourself a paper cut right now i would probably get the weird feeling in my knees like so inflicting pain on someone and watching them receive it could activate i could see how that would activate your own kind of imagination of what it would be like to suffer in their place It's also that kind of power exchange is a gift. I am a service top as well as being a bottom. Having someone entrust their body to you to do things to them that you would pretty much never do in a different context that they ask for. And then you watch how the sensation transforms them. That's very beautiful. It's rare to have that kind of you know, energy transfer, that kind of moment with somebody else that you're really connected in that way. But it is one of the you know, million dollar questions. What does it mean to ask for pain? And what does it mean to want to inflict it? And what is going on in those interactions? And, you know, people also play uh, with pain with just themselves, where they're both, you know, dom and sub in a, in a scene alone. And yeah, obviously there I, I could spiral on that tangent for forever, but it's a really interesting one to me. And I love that there are so many brilliant writers and scholars that are working in this area today. It is absolutely fascinating. And as you were speaking, it got me thinking about some of my own research on this particular topic. When I ask people about their interest in sadism versus masochism, you have a much higher percentage of people who are into masochism than who are into sadism. And of course, you have some people who are into both. But I think it's interesting that you get more people who are on the submissive and masochistic side than the dominant and sadistic side. And this is something that I've seen sort of transcends gender and sexual orientation, which suggests that there is, you know, something that appears to be much more appealing about that idea of receiving pain and giving up control rather than the opposite of that. And I, 
have a lot of thoughts as to why that is. I think we need a lot more research to understand it, but I think it does help to explain why this is just this pervasive part of our everyday lives. I think about my own journey. I started out kind of intrinsically toppy. My early sexual experiences were were on that side of things. But then once I felt safe to receive pain, I got really into it. And I love it to this day. And after a period of doing mostly that, being on the receiving end of pain has really informed the way that I would dole it out myself. I actually don't really play with people who don't have experience on both sides of the equation. Like it would be a red flag for me if, if a top was like, I've never tried this paddle on myself. I would never, ever bottom in a scene. And it's just like, why? What do you think about bottoms? Like, do you want to unpack that? Why? Like, maybe it's a power thing. Maybe it's a pain thing. And like people can have their reasons for wanting things, but like, have they been unpacked? Have you explored this at all? Or are you one of those like... I, I call them scary doms, but in reality, they're just abusers in the community who use the fact of power transfer and pain transfer to actually just get in and abuse people. And we have a real obligation to identify that and root it out when we see it, because that's not consensual masochism. And I think that people may have a very reasonable resistance to outright identifying as tops because they don't want to be lumped in with someone who's actually just like an undercover abuser and more time in the scene allows people to meet more people who switch and more people who top and kind of you get a community informed sense of the way you like to play and what you might like to explore next i appreciate you bringing all of that up and it's got me thinking about a dissertation i recently supervised where the student was interested in exploring what are called dungeon monitors, who are people who work in BDSM dungeons to make sure that everybody is playing by the rules, essentially. Because as you mentioned, there are some people who do sort of infiltrate the world of consensual BDSM as a way to commit assault and to, to hurt other people. And that is not acceptable. But you need you know these monitors in place to sort of make sure that everything is being done safely and that you don't have that abuse or exploitation that's happening. And this is something that is not often mentioned. I realize the BDSM community is stigmatized, and so they often don't like to talk about things like how abuse can happen in these situations because that can create further stigma on the community. But we still need to protect members of this community, so we have to acknowledge it. And dungeon monitors are one potential solution for it. And I'm excited for the student to publish uh, her dissertation about this because it's just fascinating where she did these in-depth interviews with people who are patrolling the dungeon and what their experiences are like and what they look for. And how do you know when something has crossed the line? Like it's so subjective, right? In a lot of ways. I want to read it. I would love to read it when it's out. <laughs> it is fascinating. Now, we're running short on time, but I have one other really important question for you, which is how we can distinguish when pain-seeking behavior is a positive source in our lives, something that can be healing, maybe even therapeutic, versus when pain-seeking becomes a problem that's in need of treatment. And I think this is really important to talk about because in my own work, I've encountered a lot of people who engage in pretty intense kink and BDSM activities who are perfectly happy and healthy. But I've also encountered people who engage in sex for intentional self-harm. 
So they will put themselves in very dangerous, very risky situations where they know there's a very serious risk of abuse, assault, or injury taking place. And they're doing this to regulate their emotions. And they usually have serious psychological issues to begin with, and they're seeking harm to punish themselves or to achieve mental escape. And it does accomplish that goal, but then afterwards they feel even worse. And then it becomes this really dangerous cycle that becomes hard to break. So can you share your thoughts on this topic? When does seeking out pain become a problem? I think that is such an important thing to talk about. And I feel that sometimes people shy away from this particular discussion because it's so slippery. The There is no hard line in the sand, like this action's okay and this one never is. It's different for every person and it can change within the same person. So when you're seeking out pain, you know there are a series of questions that I think are important to ask yourself. And it's okay if the answers are not good. You know, a life does not need to be sanitized for it to be engaged with critically. You don't have your, you don't have to have your shit together to start introspecting. It is scary though. And I get that, but we are all a mess and it's fine. (laughs) But, you know, being so and saying like, okay, I I think I want to have a scene or I think I want to experience some intense pain. What are your motivations? Why do you want the pain and, and what are you getting out of it? Does the action feel compulsive? Like what would happen if you didn't do this? What would it feel like in your body if you said actually maybe no pain today? You know, are you looking for short-term pain and release? Or are you looking for maybe harm? Because pain and harm are not the same thing. You know, you can experience pain, like say a hot pepper. You can lick a hot pepper and be in agony for 45 minutes. But as long as you're not allergic to capsaicin, you're going to be fine. That's just pain, but harm, something that causes long-term damage, that's a flag. Like, am I, am I open to long-term damage in my one and only body by engaging in this kind of pain play? Do I feel like it's something I have to do or is it a choice? Do I feel like this is going to improve my day or am I actually just punishing myself? And not, and is it like, and that's also a slippery slope because punishment can be fun. You know, there is no shame in using our bodies to find relief. We use our bodies uh, and substances and activities and things to cope. I think releasing some shame around that and giving people the space to actually be like, well, what am I getting out of this activity? Why am I choosing this kind of harm or this kind of pain? Who can I talk to about this? How can I be less alone with the knowledge of how much I hurt? You know, these are all really important questions to ask. And it's important to like kind of be in your body and be curious about where your head's at. Where's your, where's your heart at? Like, why are you doing this today? And, and then just give yourself a little gentleness with the answers that you find. Because we are all trying. You know, it's just, it's hard. It is hard. And I know I gave you a really tough question with that. And I appreciate everything that you brought up there. And it is very difficult to draw a line. And you're right, it is a slippery slope. And you start quickly venturing off into sex negativity and so forth when you start drawing like very fine lines. And so I think you're right that the important questions are really why am I doing this? And what am I getting out of it? And I think, especially if you're in a situation where 
you're putting yourself in these situations where harm is happening to your body and maybe you're temporarily feeling better in that moment because you've gotten that mental escape but then in the end you're having a rebound effect where you're feeling even worse and you're sort of getting into this cycle and you're just constantly feeling worse in the end that may be the sign that it's time to talk to a therapist and to figure out what's really going on here because sometimes it is a mental health issue that pushes us to engage in a counterproductive behavior for managing our emotions. And maybe there would be a better way in those cases to, to deal with that particular issue. So as always on this show, we're big proponents of therapy and taking care of your mental health and making sure that you are doing what is right for you. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Lee. It was wonderful to have you here. I appreciate your vulnerability and willingness to speak on challenging topics and also this great book that you've put together. So can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and to get a copy of Hurts So Good? Oh, yes. Uh, Hurts So Good, The Science and Culture of Pain on Purpose is available wherever books are sold. There is an audiobook format that I recorded. So if you like the sound of my voice, I have great news for you. <laughs> uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Voracious Brain, one word. And uh, if you want to reach out or have any questions about the show, my DMs are always open and I love to talk about my work. Well, I think you have a wonderful voice. Now I'm very curious to hear the audiobook. And <laughs> I know what the experience is like from having recorded my own audiobook. So let me ask you the question. I had to audition to record my own audiobook. I did too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I was really nervous. And I found uh, I found the uh, process of recording it to be humbling because that's when you find out all the words you say wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I would also say recording my audiobook was the most like physically and emotionally demanding thing I think I've ever done in my life. You know, 17 hours in a studio sitting there trying to speak perfectly and clearly and <laughs> no mouth noises. No mouth noises and also trying to, you know, bring a book to life. Like you're performing yeah. with your voice. It's mm -hmm. so much harder than people think it is. So I'm excited to check it out. Thank you again for being here, Lee. I really appreciate it. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, and Lee's book, Hurts So Good. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.